If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 17. We have been doing a book uh, study, a chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Acts. And it's a fascinating study as we look at what the Lord is trying to teach us, what he's trying to tell us. And today we're talking about, uh, and, and it's the, the whole series is called The Church of Fire. Well, what happens when a church catches fire? What happen, ha- happens when a church begins to understand what the Lord would have them to do, and, and it begins to grow, and it begins to, to find the Lord working in, in their midst? And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing it in Acts, and we're seeing it at Crosspoint. It's exciting to me every week to see new people come and, and to see people come to know Jesus Christ and, and then to grow in their faith. But today we're talking about taking Christ seriously. Who or what do you take seriously? Gary said he's going back to Georgia. He's, he's going back to, to the southeast. Sometimes you need to take those folks seriously. When they, when they come in and they say something, they, you need to take them seriously. Such as uh, Lonnie Holloway, 90-year-old who passed away. And he told people the whole time that, that he was uh, sick, the last couple of months of his life, that he was going to be buried in his 1973 Pontiac Catalina in Saluda, South Carolina, and nobody believed him. On September 9th, 2009, they had to bring in two cranes because Lonnie Holloway, sitting up in the front seat of his car, was buried in his 1973 Pontiac Catalina. They had even repainted the car before he got buried in it. You ought to take him seriously when he says it. And by the way, his family didn't take something else seriously. He left his house to his dog. Sometimes we we don't take things seriously the way we should. Will Rogers once said, and I love this, he said it many years ago, but I think it's uh, very applicable today. Everything is changing. People are taking their comedians seriously, and their politicians are a joke. Well, I think especially this week as we're looking at as, as an election, that's sometimes too true. What do you take seriously? There's a story in the Old Testament where the Lord says something to, to Elijah, and he took him seriously. First Kings 17, verses 2 and 3, look what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Here's Elijah. This man has said it's not going to rain for three years. He went to the king, and he said it's not going to rain until the Lord says it's going to rain. And the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. Now, if you know anything about the geography of Israel, west of the Jordan was very lush and and had water and all kinds of crops and and great place to live. East of the Jordan was like like going down where we lived in Holtville, California. They didn't have rain at all. And he's already said it's going to be no rain for all of Israel. And so he goes to the most desert part of it and camps out by a little, what they call the Kareth Ravine. They couldn't even call it a creek or a a stream because water only ran there supposedly when it rained. If you take the Lord seriously when he gives you instructions like that, you get up and you go. And that's what Elijah did. Do you take the Lord's instructions. Has the Lord given us any instructions? Sure he has. Do we take them seriously? Do you take Jesus Christ seriously? You say, well, I'm here Sunday morning, Pastor. Don't yell at me. The truth is I've been yelling at myself all week long. Because we say that we take him seriously. We say that we're really serious about what the Lord wants for us in our life. And the truth is I don't think that we're very serious. In the first part of this chapter, and I'm not going to read verses 1 through 14, 
Paul is, is sent to a couple of places, first to Thessalonica, and it says there were men of bad character. I love A.T. Robertson in, his, in his, his commentary on this, says a bunch of bums came and ran him out of town. I love that. A bunch of bums came. When, when you're opposing the word of the Lord, when you're opposing God's people, it's just a bunch of bums. And then he went from Thessalonica to Berea, and he said there they're more charitable and hospitable, and they, and they were examining the scripture, and the same bums came from Thessalonica down to Berea and ran him off again. And he ends up in Athens, and that's where I want to pick up the story today in Acts chapter 17. Because I think we need to look at two things. Number one, if you're going to be serious about the Lord, what do you do? You seriously evaluate your environment. Seriously evaluate where you're living, how you're living, what's your environment today. And look at Acts chapter 17, verses 15 and 16, just two verses, picking it up in the story at Berea, verse 15, the men who escorted Paul... And the way this whole thing went, basically Paul is, is ransomed out of the thing. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So as far as we know, Luke may have been with Paul, but much of the entourage was, was lagging behind. Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. I think we see two things here, two things here. If we're going to evaluate our environment, I think we have to ask two questions. Number one, what do you see? What do you see? If you look at your environment today, if you were to evaluate our society, if you were to evaluate our culture today, what would you see? Well, let's go back first of all and see what, Saul, uh, what, see what Paul saw when he was in Athens. If you were in ancient Athens, if you were there at the time of Christ especially, what would you have seen? Well, if you walked through Athens, you would see 30 thousand of the most magnificent sculptures you could imagine out of uh, there were bronze there were gold there were silver there were uh, statues out of marble and granite they were amazing 30,000 statues what's amazing is there were 30,000 statues built when the city only had 10,000 people there were three times the number of statues as there were people at the time that they started building those. Later, Athens grew. But 30,000 statues, you couldn't go a city block. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing the statues everywhere. You would also see the Parthenon. It was elevated. It was, it, it was uh, up on a hillside, and there was, there was a big uh, statue in front of it with a sword that was made out of gold. And the, the rumor was as you could see the Parthenon, you could see the statue in front of it for 40 miles away. If you went to Athens, you would see the Agora, the marketplace. It was beautiful. It had frescoes, uh, and, and great artists came from all over the world and used the, the, the mud and, and the stucco to make these frescoes, and, and the porticos were all of the marketplace. And it was this big, huge open market, and it was considered the, the greatest market in all of the world. If you went to Athens, you would see it was a center for intellectuals, philosophy. Uh, Socrates and Plato lived there and, and, and espoused their philosophy there. Aristotle came uh, later on and, and was a part of that. If you went to Athens, you would see the greatest mathematicians that lived in that time, Pythagoras. Do you remember the, the Pythagorean theorem? Does anybody remember that? Anybody remember math? Don't you remember you hated that theorem when you saw that? 
Well, you can blame that old Greek guy, Pythagoras, for that. Uh, or Aristarchus, the uh, plain geometry, the whole concept of, of knowing the, the, how to, to find the area of a square or a circle or any number of things. Uh, if you want to talk about uh, hydrostatics, Archimedes, uh, and, and you could go on and on. We could talk about biology and physics and ethics and political science. You know where the whole concept of people having democracy started in, in Athens and in Greece. If you wanted to know the whole concept of a multi-house uh, house and senate or a parliament, it started in Greece. The, the, the love for freedom started in Greece. And they had all of these things. And I sound like the dad from the big fat Greek wedding, don't I? It, give me any... Do you remember the movie? How many of you saw the big fat Greek wedding? Is that hilarious? The dad's in the car, and he's riding along, and he says, you take, give me any word. Every root of every word comes from Greek. And the kid in the back says, kimono. And the dad goes, uh. But the Romans left Athens intact when they, when they overwhelmed it, when they took it, when they conquered it. They didn't destroy any of Athens. The only city the Romans ever did that to, they did not destroy it out of respect for the beauty and the majesty of the city. But what did Paul see? You, you see, that's what we would see. What did Paul see? If you look at the verse, it says he saw idols. All of those statues, all of those beautiful sculptures, all of those things that were done were idols. They were all of the Greek gods. They had 30,000 gods, and so they made one for each of the gods that they knew. And Paul saw this, and, and the, the, when Luke is writing in Acts, he says it was full. The Greek word literally means it was smothered. That's the way, by the way, I like cream gravy. If you ever get chicken fried steak, I'm from the south. If you get chicken fried steak here, they give you a little tiny puddle of gravy. If you go in the south, when, when you say, I want chicken fried steak, when they put the gravy on, when they're bringing it to the table, they're leaving a trail. That's chicken fried steak with gravy. That's the way it's supposed to be done. And it was smothered in this. And Paul, and Paul says, everywhere I look, they have this great intellect, but they've missed the big point. They've missed who God is. They have this misguided view of God. When we look at our society today, it's, it's easy for us to say, oh, our society is such a great society, and it is. We have been blessed by God. I've been reading through the Old Testament, and, and I see the parallel between what God did for Israel and what God did for America. God allowed us as, as Americans to come and have freedom to worship who he was and, and to base so much of our law on the Bible and to base so much of our society on Judeo-Christian ethics and biblical standards and so Somewhere in the last 50 or 60 years, this is not a political speech. I'm just saying we've turned our back on God. And God will not bless us anymore. And Paul saw this in Athens, and, he's, and his heart was broken. When we see our political climate, when we see our social climate, when we see the drugs and the other things in our society, instead of railing against it, we ought to get on our face before God and say, God, forgive us. Bring us back to who you want us to be. Bring us back to be the people, the church that you've called us to be. Paul perceived this. God wants us to have spiritual eyes. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What do you see when you look at our world today? As a society, 
I, I, Kathy brought back a book from the Women of Faith by Ken Davis called Fully Alive, and he talks about an eye-opening time for him personally. He says, every once in a while, I, I, a glimpse of what is ahead changes the course of our lives forever. For me, it was a glimpse of what was behind. People say a picture is worth a thousand words. To me, this one word, picture, was no. It wasn't a book or a sermon or a Bible verse that gave me a kick in the pants I needed. It wasn't a speech by some inspiring motivational guru. It was a photo of me and my granddaughter at the beach. There I stood holding her hand, silhouetted in the sun. She looked like a little pixie. I looked like a walking manatee wearing a swimsuit and a green t-shirt that billowed in the breeze like a party tent. This is what he says. Do you remember Jabba the Hutt in Star Wars? I look like Jabba the Condominium. I can imagine people on the beach yelling, Move! We want to see the ocean! I didn't dare lie down for fear that environmentalists might mistake me for a beach whale and push me back in the water and I'd never get out again. He goes on, he says, In public I made jokes about how I looked. But the ugly truth is my physical state and appearance were outward evidence of inward decay. He talks about physically, mentally, and spiritually, he was obese. Those are tough words. And Ken Davis uses those words about himself because what was going on outside really reflected what was going on inside. And that's what Paul saw in that city. And that's what we have in our society. And we can stand up and rail against it. And we can, in a political year, we can, we can you know, thump and, and say this is what we need to do. The truth is we need to start on the inside. What do you see when you look closely at your life? Number two, how does it make you feel? It says that Paul saw it and he was greatly distressed. The Greek word there is uh, paroxymo. It's where we get the paroxysm out of uh, that word. And that's a sudden, sharp attack. It's a medical term. Paul, uh, Luke is a physician and, and, and it's used many times of, of someone who's having an epileptic seizure. And he says that Paul had a fit. When he saw the idols, he had this sudden attack. Now, I don't know how that worked out. Did Paul get down on the ground and, and, and scream and kick? I don't think so. But I think it, somehow it made him feel so distressed that it was like this sudden attack that came on him. By the way, that same term is used in the Old Testament. The, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, it's used in uh, Isaiah 65.3. It says, a people who continually provoke me. He's talking about Israel, and, and God is speaking. He says, these are a people who continually provoke me. The word provoke is the same word. It says, these people give me fits. You think God ever sits up in heaven and looks at our society and says, will they ever learn? These people are giving me a fit today. How does it make us feel? How do we feel? We had the fall festival and families came in. I just loved seeing all the families. I loved seeing all these kids. I, I just loved that. But there was a family that had some littler children, and they came in, and, and about a half hour before we were shutting down, the mom had had all that she could stand. We'd, we'd made her kids high on sugar. They, they'd had all the fun they could stand, and the little one was screaming. And so she said to the older daughter, we're going to go now. And the older daughter said, no. And the mom 
was trying to herd her out. And finally, the little girl, when they got almost to the, almost to the door, they were going to go out one of the side doors. She said, can I go out the side door? And I said, sure, let me help you here. And I was going to hold the door. And we got almost to the door, and the little girl fell to the floor one more time. And she said to the mom, you're ruining my life. You're ruining my life. And I looked at the mom, and I said, you know you are. No, I didn't really. Does anything you ever see in your life cause a reaction like that? Do the things that you see going on around you ever cause you to stop and say, and just your heart break? When you see families disintegrating, when you, when you see things happening in our society, when you th- see things happening in the church, when you see things happening in your own life, does it ever get you to the point where you stop and, and you think, this is ruining my life? This is ruining my society. Lord, please stop what's going on here. Do we ever get to that point? Do we ever get serious? Elijah. It's not just the little kids that pitch fit. I love Elijah. 1 Kings 19.10. Look at what it says. And, and he's been strong for the Lord, and he's been by the brook, and the Lord provides for him and gets him water and food, and, and he's gotten through these years, and he finally goes, and he has this confrontation, and he has this huge victory, and you think Elijah's going to be on the top of the world. And instead he runs from this wicked king, uh, queen who says, I'm going to kill you within 24 hours, and he has this total depression. Look what he says. He's talking to the Lord. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. You know what he's saying to God? You've ruined my life. You've ruined my life. And the Lord says, Elijah, there's 7,000 that have never bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, do you not understand? I'm using you in a powerful way. Stand strong in the Lord. What do you see? How does it make you feel? Let's go to the second part of this because I think there's so much more. And by the way, when we talk about idols, uh, John Stott, let me just read this. I wasn't going to, but let me just read this. I I have it. I I was going to cut it out, but look at this. John Stott, in in commenting on this passage, says, Idols are not always limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated idols. An idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place place which God should occupy is your idol. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is your idol. Covetousness, wanting what you don't have, is idolatry. Ideologies can be idolatries. So can fame, wealth, power, sex, food, alcohol, sports, other activities, other drugs, parents, spouse, children, friends, work, any recreation, television, possessions, even church, religion, and Christian service. Idols always seem particularly dominant in cities. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they, had, they were full of idols. My question is, when's the last time you wept over our city because of their idolatry? Look at the second part, Acts chapter 17, verses 17 through 34. Because see, the other part of this is not only should we seriously evaluate our environment, but we need to seriously decide how to engage others. If we have been moved in our hearts and our spirit by the Lord, what should we do? Look at verse 17. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? That's a really strange word, by the way. Babbler is literally in Greek seed picker, and it's used of a, of a bird who comes and picks up a seed and drops it somewhere else. So we would call it a gutter snipe. But it also became known to be used of someone who plagiarized ideas. And what he's saying is this guy doesn't have a, a creative idea in his mind. He's stealing other uh, people's ideas. It's a, it's a horrible thing to say. What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Look at verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting in the Areopagus. That's just Mars Hill, but the Areopagus, that's what they called it. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. Now look, here's a parenthesis. Luke is doing a little aside here. He says, all the Athenians Athenians, and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. In other words, he says, you don't know who you're worshiping. Let me tell you who you need to be worshiping. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he's going back to creation, to Adam, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him. And perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone in an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Let's let's take a look at this. Because if we're supposed to decide how to engage, let's find out what Paul did. Number one, we need to understand what's my method. What is my method for engaging? Paul didn't just see the problem and just let let it go and just let it pass. He did something. 
And look at who he talked to. There's really three, three groups. If, if you look, it says, first of all, he went to those who were religious. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. There are people out there today. There are many studies that have been done in America that says that 80% of Americans are religious. They have a spirituality. They believe that there is a God, that they believe that there is, is someone who needs to be worshipped, but they just don't know who it is. 80% of America is receptive to, to a clear understanding of who Jesus Christ is if we will go. Our method should include those who are religious. But he also goes on and says he went to the agora. He went to the marketplace daily, day by day, with those who happened to be there. And in that sense, the Greek is very clear that he dialogued with them. When you go to work tomorrow, if, if you work, if you go to the store, if, you, if you're out in the mall, if you're shopping, if, if, if you're interacting with your neighbors, you're in the agora, you're in the marketplace, you're in the day-to-day -day living space, and you will encounter people there that may be religious, may not be, but they need to know who, who Jesus Christ is. And does your method somehow engage those people that you rub shoulders with every day? And there's a third group. It's the, the philosophers. It's the Epicureans and the Stoics, two philosophies of life. Let me describe those because I think they really describe some people today. The Epicureans, if they had a phrase, this would be their phrase, pleasure is the chief end of life. It's all about good times. It's all about good times. They didn't really believe there was life after death. And so they made life as pain-free, as comfortable, and happy as possible. If there is a God, he's, engaged, he's unengaged with my life here. If you were going to take an Epicurean philosophy, it's this. You only go around once in life, so grab with all the gusto that you can. I think one of the beer commercials maybe uses that concept. And those are the Epicureans. It's all about pleasure. The Stoics, on the other hand, they were taught by a man by Zeno. Uh, and the word Stoic comes actually from stoa, which means portico or porch. And he would stand on this portico, this porch, and he would talk to them. And though they became known as the Stoas or the Stoics, and they listened to him. And his whole philosophy was that God is everywhere in wood and stone and everything. He was a pantheist, and he was also fatalist. You can't change anything. What is determined to be is going to happen. And virtue is the supreme good. Indifference, apathy is the key to life. So what you do is you just live above the pain. And if you were going to have someone who would model that, it would be Mr. Spock from Star Trek. Remember Mr. Spock? He never, showed any, he, he never showed any emotion. He was impassioned all the time. He was stoic. He just rose above the pain. You say, well, what does that have to do with me? We, have, we live in a world that is peopled by Epicureans and Stoics. You can't change anything anyway, so let's just go ahead and live life. We don't know if there's any life after this, so let's just make this life as much of heaven on earth as we possibly can. How did Paul communicate with such diverse groups? He explained. If you go back to chapter 17, verse 2, it says, As his custom was, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He dialogued, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. He gave his personal testimony. At least three different places in the book of Acts, we know of Paul's testimony. Twice he's referring back to what happened on that day when he was on the road to Damascus. He told them what happened to him. Paul's method was always this, just tell them what God did in my life. 
When was the day that, that you met Jesus Christ? You say, well, I wasn't on Damascus, and I didn't, on the road to Damascus, I didn't have this bright light shining down on me. When did you find Jesus Christ in your life? Just tell other people about that. That's where we start in our method. But then it goes on, well, and he explained what happened. I, and I think that's similar to what happened to the woman at the well. John chapter 4 says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Have you ever told someone how you came to know the Lord, how he changed your life? But there's a second part of this. He also reasoned with them. He proved who Jesus was. He dialogued. And literally the words mean, the Greek word means to put the pieces together. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. And he began to sort the, the, the border and he began to fill in the picture for them. He reasoned with them. And I think that's very similar to what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 9.22. 1 Corinthians 9.22 says, To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. And our method has to include both. They're going to call him a babbler. They're going to call you a, a seed picker. They're going to say that you have never had a creative idea, that you're just espousing something you've heard at church. But you just tell them what Jesus Christ did. You begin to reason with them and tell what you've learned from Scripture. What's your, what's your method? Number two, what's my message? What is my message? Paul stood in the Areopagus. And that literally means the hill of Ares. That's one of the Greek gods, also known as Mars. That's why we call this the Mars Hill. And let me set the scene. Paul is standing there, and right in front of him, and I'm going to turn my back to you, because right in front of him was this Doric temple, this huge temple, the Thessium. And the Thessium was standing right in front of him. To his right would be the Parthenon, and, and it was rising on the Acropolis, and it could be seen for miles. And so he's standing there on his right, huge, just, just dominating, overlooking him, is this huge building that's considered to be probably the most perfectly built building in all of history. And on his left is the Agora. Over here is, is the Agora and, and, and all that's taking place in the Agora and the market's bustling and people are talking and he's standing here on this hillside and they're seated and they're listening to him. And what does he say? He first of all says, you guys have got it wrong. Did you understand what you've missed? You're trying to worship an unknown God and you're very religious but you've missed the most important part. Because I can tell you who that God is. He's the creator God. And he, and he goes through a whole list of things. He says God is the creator. It's not what we create as a God. God is the one who created us. We don't create him. And in our society today, have we created the God that we like? Have we created a God in a little box? Have we created a God that, that if we get into trouble, we can go and pray about these things and God will answer that prayer? But God, we want to keep him in this little box because we don't really want him to infiltrate our life. And Paul says that's not the kind of God that we serve. He gives you breath. He's the sovereign God. God is creator, God is sovereign, God is all-powerful, and he's there in every aspect of your life. God's also near. 
Do you notice he says, God did all this so that he could be near. And he uses the picture of a blind person that can't see, that's groping around trying to find the, the cup or the, or the, the plate or, or whatever he's looking for. He says, even though it's like you're blind, he's there. He's close enough so that he can, he, you can reach out and you can touch him. God is near. He says, God is our Father. He quotes some of their prophets, and he says, listen, we are his offspring. The truth is God is the father of all mankind. I think it's interesting because there's, there's all this race talk. This is the most nonsense I've ever heard in my life. You know how many races there are? There's one. It's a human race. We all go back to Noah. We all go back to Adam. There's only one race. It doesn't matter what color you are, your ethnicity, or your background. There's only one race, and God created us in his image, it says in Genesis. We need to get over that nonsense. We have the same blood. We have the same DNA. We have the same God and Father. Then he says God is our judge. You see, he's taken them from the creation, the sovereignty, and, and the nearness, and, and, and that God is the God and Father. But he also says God is also perfect. He's holy, and there will be a time that he will judge. Who? And then he finally says God is Savior because he talks about the resurrection. You can't talk about the resurrection without pointing to why Jesus went to the cross. And he told them that Jesus Christ is the God-man, that God came down in flesh and went to the cross to pay for everything wrong you've ever done and everything wrong I've ever done. And he went to the cross and he stretched out his arms and he died for us and he was buried and God proved who Jesus was by raising him from the dead. I have to tell you, of all the sermons you'll ever find in all the Bible, this is the most perfect sermon that Paul preached that day. I think it's very possible that Paul quoted Isaiah 53, 5, because Paul, the Old Testament scholar, when it came to this, the, the death, the burial, the resurrection, I think he would have said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. As Luke has summarized this message, I think there's probably a lot that he left out. And I think that's possible. It's possibly one of the parts that Paul would have gone to. And what were the responses? Three very different responses. Some mocked, some delayed, and some believed. My question to you is, what's your motive? What's your method? What's your message? If your motive is because you have been moved by God, you've been troubled and stirred, then you can go out and you can have a method and you can have a message. It's a different kind of message that we've had today. I want to close a true illustration. 25 years ago, truly 25 years ago, there was a young man. I was working in the car business at the time young man by the name of David who came to work for us. He was a salesman. I didn't directly work with him. But David was a very sharp guy. He had just gone through a divorce. He, he was really struggling in his life. And David went out every night and partied. Uh, when, he, when he would make a good sale and he would get paid on the 1st or the 15th, sometimes he wouldn't have enough money to get food till the next paycheck because he would go out and party. And, and David partied hard with other people. And, and he was an Epicurean. He, pleasure was his life. And he came into me one morning, and he was hung over, and his eyes were bloodshot. And I was, I'm a morning person. 
There are two kinds of people. I've told you this before. There are morning people and those who hate morning people. I'm a morning person. And, and I was greeting him, and he said, do you have any coffee? And I said, I don't drink coffee. And he said, how can you be that perky without caffeine? And I said, I have caffeine. It's called Diet Coke. And David and I were talking for a minute, and he just said, my life, my life sucks. That's the nice version of it. And as I was talking with David and listening to David, and I didn't do as much talking as I just listened for a minute, he said, I would do anything to change my life. And I said, really? He said, I'd do anything. And that morning, there at the car business, while I was doing paperwork, I was explaining what happened to me when as a little boy I came to Jesus Christ. That morning at the car business, I said, David, if you're really serious about this, you can know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I explained the Romans' road of salvation to him, that we've all sinned, that, that God paid the, the payment for us, and, and that if you confess your sins, he will, he will forgive you and he'll bring you into a new family. And I gave him that very simple outline of the gospel. And he said, George, get out of your pastor mode. You're the business manager today. You're not the pastor. And I said, David, you just told me you'd do anything to change your life. He said, I believe in Jesus. I'm just not that serious about him. David didn't change his life the whole time that I was at the car business. I eventually got back full-time into the ministry, and, and I would run into David occasionally in Amarillo, and, and eventually he and his wife, he, he, he married again a wonderful Christian young woman, and they became uh, part of a Sunday school class that we were involved in, and I would encourage him, and I, we had him over to the house, and he still let swear words slip, and he had just other things in his life I knew that were not pleasing to the Lord. I, and, and you could just see that he was not growing, and, he, and, he, and I would talk to him and say, you know, that's just not for me, that whole religious thing. He said, I believe in Jesus. I'm just not that serious. Twelve years ago, we were back in Amarillo. We were there for a couple of different things. And I was checking my messages in Holtville, California, and there was a message from David. And he said, he didn't say George. He said, Pastor, I want you to know something. Tonight, someone led me to Jesus Christ. I'm serious about Jesus Christ in my life. And his life changed totally. And he had the joy and the peace and everything. And, and when I heard that and he left a phone number and it happened, I was in Amarillo. We had been living in Holtville and I was in Amarillo and I was checking my messages. It was a divine appointment because he was in Amarillo, I was in Amarillo, and he had called me in California to leave the message. Is that a divine appointment? And I called him and talked with him, and we wept together. And he told me how he'd gone to Sunday school, and his life was, was just, it was just a roller coaster, and he, and he was all over the map. And he finally came to the point where he said, I just surrendered everything to him. He said, I've never been any happier in my life. Because he got serious about who Jesus Christ is. My question is, are you? Would you pray with me? Father, the truth is, over and over, you've begged us to come into your presence, and you've said that you're near enough that if we would just grope and reach out, that you're so close, you're just waiting for us to turn to you. And Father, I don't know who's hearing me today that needs you, but I believe you have divine appointments still, and you bring the right person at the right time to hear the right message so they can respond. 
Father, I also know that there are people here who accepted you many years ago, but they haven't been very serious about following your instructions. And they need to surrender those areas of life that they keep building up walls against you. So take down the walls. Father, may we come humbly surrendered to you in your presence. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much. Thank you for sending your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.